I want you to imagine for a minute what it would be like to go back in time, 5, 10, 20, 25 years ago, and interview your younger self. What do you think your younger self would think about your older self? What do you think your older self would think about your younger self? Like if you could go back and you could talk to you when you were, say, a junior in high school, what would you tell yourself? You might tell yourself, you know, maybe that Motley Crue tattoo on the small of your back is not the best idea. You might tell yourself, you know, just because Arby's will sell you five roast beef sandwiches for $5 does not mean you need to buy them. You know, one thing I would like to tell myself when I was 16 or 17 years old, I would like to go back and say, Jesse, be nice to weird people. Because in the end, that's the only kind of people there are. But I think... I think if you could go back and you could meet a younger version of you, I think the one thing that would stand out to both of you is how much you've changed. Uh, whether it's for the better, whether it's for the worse, uh, all of us have changed, haven't we? Now, change is a part of life. In fact, change is about the only part of life that really doesn't change. Uh, the Greek philosopher Heraclitus, even years before Jesus came into the world, he wrote that you can never step into the same river twice. Because things always change. We can fight it. We can resist it. But it's coming. Whether you like it or not, change happens. Politics changes. Leaders change. Styles of dress and of music change. People change. Technology changes. The world changes. Everything changes. Even you change. Like Even your physical body changes as your cells die and then renew themselves. So if you don't like who you are this morning, wait around seven or eight years. You'll be somebody different. You know, everything changes. We uh, hear stories all the time about changing values and changing priorities and changing morals and even a changing climate. Everything changes. But does God change? Does God change? Now, I'm sure some of you already have your, your prepackaged church VBS answer chambered and ready to go. No, God doesn't change. The Bible says in Hebrews that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. But it's true, as it is, that God doesn't change. I do think it's true that many of you live as if God has changed. God is as good, as gracious, as loving, as faithful, as righteous as He ever has been. And yet, if you could meet yourself 5, 10, 20 years ago, maybe even just 6 months ago, you would look back and see that your relationship with Him has changed. And if your relationship with a God who hasn't changed has changed... He's not the one who's changed. You've changed. Today, as we finish up this brief study we've done on Sunday mornings of some explicit things the Bible says that God can't do, we're going to look at a place where God says clearly, I cannot change. And we're going to understand from this passage we're going to look at in just a moment how God's inability to change, properly called God's immutability, how God's immutability is the foundation of our understanding of who He is, the foundation of how He relates to us, and it should be the cornerstone of how we relate to Him. I want to show this to you today in Malachi chapter 3 and verse number 1. Malachi chapter 3 and verse number 1. And I will ask when you have that in your Bible, if you would stand with me as we read and honor God's Word. If you don't have your Bible with you today, that's all good. You can probably download a smartphone before we, the app on your smartphone before we read it. If you don't want to do that because you can't connect to the Wi-Fi and we're not going to give you the password, we've got it on the screen for you. Malachi chapter 3, I want you to notice what God says to us in His Word. God says through the prophet Malachi, Behold, 
I send my messenger. And he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to this temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with the curse, for you are robbing me. The whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you, and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you. So that it will not destroy the fruits of your soul. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper... But they put God to the test and they escape. You can be seated. Trust the Lord to bless us today. Like many of his Old Testament contemporaries, the prophet Malachi preaches a message that is both looking ahead to this future tense salvation through the coming of a promised Messiah. But Malachi in particular, as you can tell, uh, has a really strong taste for preaching judgment. The Bible says that it is the job of a pastor to reprove, rebuke, and exhort his congregation. You preach from Malachi, there's going to be a lot of reproof and rebuke. Malachi is rough. And in a unique way, Malachi is saying, yes, Jesus is coming. But you better straighten out before he gets here. That's what Malachi is saying to his people. And so Malachi is writing in particular to the Jewish community After they have been exiled to Babylon, they were shipped away and deported for 70 years away from home and away from this place where God had blessed them, away from the temple. And God does this incredible miracle. He restores His people. He brings them back to Israel. And for a long time, they're faithful. They're excited. They're passionate. They stand amazed in the presence of God who would redeem them. But all that excitement's in the past. All the the feelings of wonder and the feelings of worship... That's all given way to the more pressing concerns of everyday life. The people just aren't as passionate about God as they used to be. Just not as excited about the God who'd saved them as they were before. And this book shows us in a very unique way the pull of, the pull of sin that leads us into apathy. It shows us the gravitational draw of sin that drags us down into indifference and lack of concern about the things of God. 
And so to combat that apathy, to combat that indifference, God uses Malachi to call the people to repentance. And that's what he does in this book. But Malachi does this in a unique way. He doesn't just so much come and preach a straight-up sermon the way we're used to hearing somebody preach. What Malachi does is he delivers God's message in kind of this uh, fictitious conversation between God and His people. God will say something to the people, and then God imagining the people respond. Well, when do we do that? I think you see that in verse 7 and verse 14 of the text. Well, how, how do we do that? We never said that. We don't do that. And God said, no, here's how you have done it. And God lays the hearts of the people out for them to see. He lays the heart of the people out for us to see. And God really lays our heart open for us to see in this passage of Scripture too. And Malachi, he gives it straight with no chaser. The first church that I pastored, I preached for 12 weeks through the book of Malachi. It about killed all of us. They didn't have pastor appreciation for three years after I quit preaching the Malachi. It's good that Malachi is at the very end of the Old Testament because when you get through Malachi, you need Jesus to get here. And so Malachi is confronting the sins of the people and he says to them, you are unstable. You are not reliable. You are not committed. You change all the time in the way you are devoted to God. But God does not change. And he says that is the only reason God has not destroyed you and it is the only hope that you have. And what Malachi is doing here in Malachi chapter 3, he's doing more than just trying to get people to tithe. He's reminding them that God's faithfulness to them comes out of God's inability to change. And if God really doesn't change, then our relationship to Him should never fall into the kind of indifference and apathy that we see here in Malachi. And that we see so often in our own hearts. So what is it about God's inability to change that's so critical to our understanding of who He is? It's so crucial to our understanding of how He relates to us and so foundational to our understanding of how we relate to Him. I want to show you that today as we think about the idea that God can't change. And if you can look back in your life this morning and you can see how there was a time 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago when you were more passionate about Jesus, when you were doing more for Him, when you were more excited about Him, when you were serving Him with more devotion and with more passion and with more intensity... And you can say, all of that's changed. Then I just want to show you today, God's not the one that's changed. He is no different than He ever has been. He didn't change. You did. He can't change. You can. But, because He can't change, He is able to change you. That's what He's doing in this passage. He's calling these people back to change. So let's think about God's unchanging character first in this text. God and His unchanging character. If there's any confusion here about whether or not God can change, or whether or not God will change, or whether or not God has changed, the Lord speaks pretty clearly and pretty plainly there in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. God takes any possibility of change in His own character off the table, and He says, I do not change. God's Word does not change. God's expectations do not change. God's nature does not change. What God has defined as sin does not change. What God loves does not change. What God hates does not change. Now, let me just interrupt myself here and give a little commentary on the passage here. If you were raised in super traditional churches the way I was, a lot of times people would use and abuse verses of Scripture like this, and they would say, see, God doesn't change, so churches can't change either. I want to tell you why there's a problem with that. The reason that God can't change is because God is perfect. The reason churches better change is because they're not perfect. We grow, we mature, we learn. And Malachi's point here really is, God doesn't do any of those things. 
God does not mature. God does not grow. God does not learn. God certainly does not need to repent, which itself is change. So think about it. You change in this life as you grow, right? You go from infancy to childhood to adolescence to maturity, and then you become a senior citizen, God willing. God does not age, and He does not change. You change as you learn. You absorb new information and learn how to process that information in better ways. And as you learn, you are constantly changing and adjusting to what you have come to find out is true. God has never learned anything. Because God knows everything. And God is never going to learn anything because there's nothing for God to learn. There are people and forces outside of you, beyond your control, that act on you that cause you to change. One of them, for instance, is time. Time changes all of us. God is not bound to time. He controls time. It is His creation. There's nothing beyond Him, above Him, or outside of Him that acts on Him that forces Him to change. So while you may be a creature who is marked by change, God does not change. And you do change all the time. Some of y'all used to be cool. You did, man. You used to be on the cutting edge. Some of you shaking your head like, no preacher, I really didn't. Maybe. But now, you turn on the radio and you hear something come on the radio by this thing called a Cardi B. And you think, what has happened to music? What happened is you changed. And music got trashy. Both of those things changed. There is, in your bathroom floor, a scale. There is on your bathroom wall a mirror. And those two things are monuments to the fact that all of us change. But God does not change. He cannot change in any direction. He cannot change for the better because He's already perfect. And being perfect, He would not and could not change for the worse. The Bible says it this way in Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. Of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same and your years have no end. Our creation that we live in, it is marked by impermanence. And the one permanent is God. He is the one that lasts. He is the one who exists. He is the one who exists without ever becoming. He simply is. And this idea is so critical to our understanding of who God is because it helps us see that God really is not like us. I'm starting to understand after 11 years of pastoral ministry that really the one big thing that I do just over and over and over again is I confront people with the fact, hey, God really is not like you. His thoughts are not your thoughts. His ways are not your ways. He's not like you, but with a better beard and superpowers. God is not like you. Dutch theologian Herman Bavink said that the doctrine of God's immutability or that God cannot change is of the highest significance for religion. The contrast between being... And becoming marks the difference between the Creator and the creature. Every moment of your life, you have been becoming either better or worse. You have been becoming different. God has never become anything. God is. He exists in a constant state of perfect. That's why Moses heard from the Lord in Exodus chapter 3. I am who I am. Who else would He be? He is God and He always will be God. His omnipotence does not change because God has all power. He's always had all power. He will never have any less power than He has right now. And He can never have any more power than He has right now. God's omniscience does not change because God will never know more than He knows because He knows everything because He knows Himself. 
And because He knows Himself and all things come from Him, He will never know less than He knows right now. God's sovereignty will never change. God will never be in any more control than He is at this moment. And because He is in full control, He will never be in any less control than He is right now. God's holiness will never change because God will never ascribe to a higher standard of moral perfection than He is right now. Because there is no higher standard than Him. And being perfectly righteous and holy, He would never be less perfect, righteous and holy than He is. Understanding that God cannot change helps us to see how different He is than us. And I hope over the past few weeks as we've talked about these things God can't do, as we've talked about how God cannot sin, but we can. As we've talked about how God can't forget His people, but we sure can forget Him and end up in situations where we feel like we're forgotten by Him. As we've talked about how God cannot share His glory, even though we are in our hearts expert makers of idols. I hope you've understood just how different God is from you. And we're going to see here in Malachi chapter 3, That what is needed in our hearts to be who God wants us to be and to do what God wants us to be, we have to have, at the very core of who we are, a healthy view of God. Our goal in life as individuals and as a church must be to clear our minds from every polluted thought about who God really is. So that when we think about God, what we think of is nothing different than what God thinks about when He thinks of Himself. Amen. If we do not have clear and accurate thinking about God, then we have problems. One of my favorite writers and preachers is a Presbyterian pastor by the name of Donald Gray Barnhouse. And Donald Barnhouse has been with Jesus in heaven for a long, long time. But Donald Gray Barnhouse graduated from Princeton Seminary uh, back when people at Princeton Seminary still believed in God. And he went to... He went to seminary. After he graduated from seminary, he became very well known for a radio ministry, wrote a bunch of books, became a pretty well-known celebrity pastor back uh, in a generation or two before us today. And he said that while he was in seminary, there was one professor that all of the students always wanted to impress. They never could quite get a read on him. It's always real hard to, to break through the surface, but everybody loved this professor and they wanted so badly to impress him, to prove that they were going to be capable ministers and to prove that they were good students. Well, years after he graduated, he was invited to go back to Princeton Seminary and to preach in chapel. And he said in his story, you know, I'm glad to be able to go back and to preach to anybody. I'm glad to be able to go back to my alma mater and preach. But he said, I really just went to see if I can impress this old professor I had. Because he's still there, still teaching. And so he goes back and he preaches and he said while he was preaching, you know, people were clapping at the right times and laughing at the right times and nodding their head. But he said right after he started, he noticed the old professor walked in, sat on the very back row on his right hand side. And he said he sat in that back row and he just kind of hung his head like this. Which, by the way, is real encouraging when you do that during preaching. And if you didn't laugh... The reason is because he's doing this. But he said as he preached, he looked at this professor. He wanted to impress him so bad from years ago when he was a student. And he looked at him and he's just, and he said it bothered him. But he, you know, he finished the sermon. He's a professional. He finished the sermon and he shakes hands with some of the students and shakes hands with the faculty and staff. And everybody tells him, Dr. Barnhouse, you did such a great job. We're so thankful for you, all this kind of stuff. And finally, the old professor weaves his way through the crowd and he shakes Dr. Barnhouse's hand. And he says to him, the first words out of his mouth, he said, Mr. Barnhouse, I will never be back to hear you preach. And he was floored. He's like, what did I do wrong? But here's what the professor said to him. 
He said, we graduate two types of students from Princeton Seminary. We graduate students that believe in a little God. And we graduate students that believe in a big God. And he said, Mr. Barnhouse, I heard from your sermon clearly that you believe in a big God and you'll be fine. I don't need to hear anything else you need to say. Friends, we need to be people who believe in a big God. I assure you, when your life falls apart, you need a God big enough to put it back together. When you're going through life and you have more questions than answers, you need to know a God who is big enough to be the answer. If you want God to save your children and to do miracles in this community, you'd better have a God who is as big as He says He is. God help us as people say, we want to believe in a God who is beyond our understanding, whose ways are not our ways, whose thoughts are not our thoughts. We believe in a God as big as He says He is. And I will tell you straight up, that as long as I'm the one responsible for preaching His Word from the pulpit of Sharon Heights Baptist Church, we are not going to preach and hear about a little God. We are going to preach about a God who is big enough to do what He said and to be what He says. We are going to plan and dream and pray and serve as if we have a big God. God says, I am the Lord. I do not change. I am not like you fickle creatures that are marked by all these things that make you different. God said, I am always and only perfect because I am always and only God. So, that's God's unchanging character. But if we put this fully in the context of Malachi 3, we have to talk more about God's unchanging covenants. The Lord doesn't just stroll into Israel and say, hey, I'm the Lord, I don't change. And everybody said, okay. Look at what He says in verse 6. I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, because I do not change, what I'm about to say to you is true. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. He says, you sons of Jacob, you are unstable. You are unreliable. Your commitments come and they go. They're up and they down. And God said, the only reason I have not destroyed all of you is because I don't change. And because I have said that I am for you. And because I am in a covenant relationship with you, where I've committed myself to you, that's the only reason, that's the only reason there's any stability at all in our relationship. So think through the outworkings of the fact that God cannot change for a moment. If God cannot change, then His purposes are forever. What He intends to do, He will do. God says to us in Isaiah 46, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. If God cannot change, then His promises are forever. Numbers twenty three nineteen. even Balaam the prophet, as screwed up as he was, said it right when he said, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God's word does not change. God's expectations do not change. What God has defined as sin and what God has defined as righteousness does not change. What pleases God does not change. What frustrates God does not change. But imagine what it would be like if God could change. Do you know if God could change, then you could never trust His Word. Because what if He promised something and then changed His mind and said, You know, I'm not going to do that. You could never know God's will. Because if God changed and God may say, here's what you need to do. And God said, you know what? I don't think so. If God could change, you would never have any reason at all to pray. Somebody said, wait a minute, preacher. I thought we were praying to change God to begin with. Nope. 
Most of the time you need to be praying to change you is what you need to be praying about. But if God could change, then when you prayed, how would you know he'd answer? He's told you he would answer, but what if he said, nah, I don't really care about what you are going through. If God could change, here's Malachi's point. If God could change, you would never have any assurance of your relationship to him. Because with all the changes and all the junk and the instability that we bring into our relationship to God, how do we know that God's not going to change and just walk out? We walk out on our relationship with him all the time. How do we know that he's not going to change and walk out? God says, because I'm God and I do not change, and because I have committed myself to you, that covenant relationship will never change. So our God today cannot be taken off guard. He cannot be surprised. He does not learn new and better information about how sinful and how sorry we really are. He's known every bit of that from the beginning, and yet He still said, I am for my people, and I will not walk out of that relationship. Indeed, this whole passage, this whole prophecy, this whole message, this whole book is a reflection of God's unchanging heart to bless His people. Which means that, yes, today, if you've blown it in the past few weeks or months, God knows every bit of that. He knows your sin. He knows how unstable you are. He knows how unreliable you are. He knows how unpredictable you are. But the assurance and the solid ground of your relationship with Him does not rest on how stable you are. It rests on how stable He is. He is the one who is supporting the relationship. He is the one who has made the commitment that will not fail. It is God and God alone and His unchanging character and perfect nature that grants us assurance that none of this will change. Now, I think there's clarity in this when he refers to the children of Israel in verse 6 as children of Jacob. On the one hand, that is a very literal, very true statement. All of them were descendants of Jacob. Every ethnic Jew in the world today is a descendant of Jacob, a son or a daughter of Jacob. But there's also deeper spiritual issues going on here. If you know the story of Jacob in the Bible, then you know that there's nobody in the Bible that's more unreliable, more unpredictable, more deceitful than Jacob. Jacob was the kind of guy who loved God for a few minutes, maybe even a few weeks, and then he would fall in love with himself all over again. And being so head over heels in love with himself, he would go cheat somebody, rob somebody, use and abuse somebody, and get in all kinds of trouble. And then what would he do when he got in trouble? He'd come running back to God. And he'd fall in love with God all over again for about five good minutes. His life, his walk with God was exactly like yours. It was like a roller coaster. It was up and down. And there were loops. And there were hills. And there were valleys. And there were about three minutes of excitement. And you'd get off exactly where you started from. That's about all Jacob's relationship with God was. And yet, God is saying to these people who throughout all of their history have behaved just like Jacob, I am committed to you. Why does he do that? Well, because when he calls them children of Jacob, he's hearkening back really to something that's said in the beginning of the book of Malachi. In Malachi chapter 1 verses 1 and 2, or really chapters 1 verses 2 and 3, He says, I have loved you, says the Lord. God talking to His people, I have loved you. And what do they say when God says, I have loved you? They don't say, oh, shout to the Lord. No, they don't do that. How have you loved us? Prove you love us. How have you loved us? Here's what the Lord says. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now, I know some of y'all get shook when you read that and think, well, how in the world could God hate Esau? Well, I don't know. It seems like a pretty big creep to me. If you met him, you probably would have hated him too. 
The shock here is not that God hated Esau. The shock is that God loved Jacob. Why did God love Jacob? God loved Jacob because God is a good God who said, I'm going to take him and I'm going to make something of him. And even though these people in Malachi, and even though you and I walk that same story that Jacob walked, where we're hot one week and cold the next week, where we let what other people do affect our passion for God, somebody say amen, when we are up and down and faithful and unfaithful and in and out and committed and not committed and in this church and that church and this position and that position, and we're on fire for God and then somebody's hurt our feelings, what is it that offers any stability at all to our relationship with God? God says the only thing that offers you any stability is the fact that I do not change. That I have chosen to be good to you, I have chosen to bless you, and because I don't change, that will never change. God says, I've loved you when you were unlovable. I chose you when there was no reason for me to choose you. When there was nothing good about you. When you've walked out on me. When you've ran away from me. God said, I do not change. And that's why I'm still here calling you back to myself. Now, as great as that might be, let's be honest with Malachi's message. Not everybody is a son of Jacob. Because he says in those verses, we've got to deal with Esau too. Even today, not everybody is in a covenant relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. There are people today that their DNA is not like Esau's, but their heart is like Esau's, and that they're not really serious about who God is and don't want to know Him and are not going to follow Him. And friend, if that is you here today, I would want you to know that you can come to know the Lord. You can repent, you can be forgiven, and thank God for that promise. But God does not just promise blessings and salvation for His people. He also promises judgment to those that aren't His people. And God does not change. And those promises where He threatens judgment, those are as real as His promised blessings. And if there's ever been a point in your life when you came to church or when you had a family member tell you about the necessity of salvation in Jesus and you maybe were troubled in your conscience about that, but you failed to trust Jesus, I want you to know that those promises of judgment from the Scriptures are as real today as they were then. And the bigger problem you have is that that judgment is closer today than it was then. The Lord tells us in Luke 13, 5, except you repent, you will all likewise perish. Friend, that is true. The hammer of God's judgment is still ready and waiting to fall on all of those that do not know Christ. God does not change. As much as we might like to think that God has hired a PR firm and He's remaking His image for our tolerant age, it's not true. If God promised to judge those Outside of Christ, that promise is still true. And that promise will not change. God's unchanging covenant. But I want to move quickly. I had more I wanted to say there. But we need to get really into the rest of the passage. Because it talks about tithing. we got to hit that, right? Let's talk about God's unchanging conditions. What I mean is, God is in the covenant relationship with these people. And so God has expectations on those people. And what God is going to say to these people is this. You have changed in your relationship to me. But I haven't changed. I still want to bless you. What gives? Now, we are all in this dynamic where we are creatures who can change in a relationship with a God who can't change. And what happens to our relationship with God when change comes? Well, we become like the children of Israel in verse 7. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Then the Lord says, return to me and I will return to you. An incredibly gracious invitation from the Lord. But they say, how shall we return? How are we going to come back to you, Lord? Then what God says, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. You say, well, have we robbed you? In your tithes 
and contributions. Your tithes and your offerings. Now, you cannot imagine how much I am resisting right now. Every impulse I have as a Baptist preacher from North Carolina to preach to you for 10, 15 good minutes about why you need to tithe. It's taking literally every ounce of willpower that I have. And I may not make it. What I want you to think through here is how this one specific issue of tithing and giving the Lord the offerings that should have been His, how that revealed the condition of their hearts. Their giving, or really their lack thereof, any real giving, said something very simple, and it said something very sad about who they believed God to be. They gave little gifts because they believed in little God. Okay? They're saying, God is just not worth much. And I say that because of verse number 14 where the people have said, said it's vain to serve God. There's no profit in it. God's just not worth it. And really what I'd hope you'd see is that here Malachi is pointing us to the fact that you can, with somebody's tithes and offerings, you can many times see how much they value God. Because there's a real value measure there. Remember the story of the widow's mite in Luke 21. Jesus goes into the temple. All these guys are giving these huge sums of money. But the Lord sees this woman kind of give two pennies and he says she gives more. What he's teaching there is that it is the attitude behind the gift that matters to God more than the amount of the gift. But if the amount is zero, what does that say about the attitude? And that's what's happening in the book of Malachi. These people were not giving because they said God is not worth it. And sometimes we think about tithing, you know, as if God just really overestimates how important all this is. Like, you know, heaven's getting ready to go bankrupt if we don't give our little 10%. As if God really needs our money. You know, hey, that, that $30 check I put in there, buddy, that's going to keep the lights on in glory for another week. And don't be dumb. Be generous, don't be dumb. But our giving reveals how we think about God's value. And I hope you understand that the way you give reveals how you think about God's ability to provide for you. It says, I don't know if I can really trust him with all of this. If I give, God won't take care of me. How we give proves whether or not he is the center point of our lives or whether we want to take what should be rightfully his and use it to finance our own happiness. I told you I couldn't get back through this without preaching about tithing. But let's put this together now. All right, Here's where this is important. Here's what you need to hear. So here's what I, I want to get to today. That if God really is the unchanging God of covenant faithfulness, who is today what He always has been, and will be exactly what He is today a million years from now in eternity. If God really is the same God He always has been, then He still deserves your faithfulness. He still deserves your best. He still deserves your worship. And some of you today can look back at a time in your life when you were more excited, more passionate, more committed, more devoted than you are today. He's still the same God He was then. That's the point Malachi is preaching. That He is still worthy of as much glory because He is still as glorious as He was then. He's still as faithful to you as He ever was. His heart is still full of love toward you as much as it was when you felt love towards Him. God has not changed. He is still worth as much worship. He is still worth as much praise. He is still worth as much giving of your time and your talents and your money and your energy. He is still worth serving. He is still worth praising. And under God, some of you have forgotten that. 
Some of you have forgotten that God is today who He was seven or eight years ago when you liked the preacher who was preaching in the pulpit. Amen, brother. You're telling it right. Some of you have forgotten that God is exactly the same as He was 20 years ago when you liked this music that the choir was singing better than you do today. Some of y'all have forgotten that God is still as faithful and as good and as glorious and as righteous and as loving. He has not changed any from the days when you were passionate and excited and serving. That's what he's saying to these people here. And so as God continues to hammer this to these people, I told y'all Malachi's rough and y'all needed Jesus. I mean. So as Malachi preaches this, he says to them in verse 9, You are cursed with a curse for you're robbing me. But God says in verse 10, put me to the test. I will open up the windows of heaven. And he says, eventually, I will bless you so much that everybody else around you is going to look at you and say, man, those people really are blessed by God. So here's the thing about it. God is for the good of his people. He's not trying to get their money. He really does believe, like Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And he says, if you give, you're going to see incredible blessings that I want you to have and everybody's going to see it so that you are blessing other people through how blessed you are. And man, that principle goes beyond tie checks and offering envelopes. This principle is that when we serve the Lord faithfully, we are blessed in ways that we simply cannot imagine. But when we think very little of God, we end up with little bitty lives that accomplish very little for His sake and experience little blessings Because we just don't see how worthy and how glorious He is. When you get so wrapped up in yourself, you'll never be any bigger than who you are. But you get wrapped up in Jesus, your life can be as big as He is. That's what God is saying to these people. He said, you think so little about me. And He says, I have so much more planned for you. I want to share life with you. I want you to experience the goodness and the fullness of what it means to walk with me. Some of you think that you are doing yourself good by holding parts of your life back from God. God said you are killing yourself. You are strangling your spiritual vitality because you are holding back parts of your life from God. But here in this passage, you have a God of grace coming to the people saying, return to me. Come back to me and I will return to you. God is still saying, as stingy and as selfish and unstable and as wicked as they are, God is still saying, I love you and I want you to be blessed. God even says these people are robbing Him, but God says, I want you robbers to be blessed. I don't know if you've ever been robbed. I've never been robbed properly, like gun in the face. But like eight months after Amy and I got married, we had somebody get all of our debit card information. Cleaned us out. Now, I take consolation in the fact that we were newlyweds and we didn't have anything. So they got our social security number and they've been disappointed ever since. But I promise you that if I could have got that dude who got our debit card information, I promise you that I probably wasn't going to tell him about Jesus. I might have sent him to meet Jesus. But I did not in that moment, I did not want that guy's good. I did not want him to be blessed. And yet God is the one being robbed, saying to these people who have a gun in his face, saying, you know, I love you. I want you to give everything to me so that you can be blessed. 
so that you can take those little gifts you give me and I can fill them with the fullness of who I am and your life can overflow with the goodness of God. Friend, that is who God is. He is a God who pursues us, who loves us, who is unchanging in His commitments to us and that's who He will always be. And God is calling out to some of you today from this text, return to me and I will return to you. Or as James said it, draw near to me and I will draw nigh to you. You've got every excuse not to serve Him. You've got every excuse to walk away from Him. You've got every excuse you think to say He's not worth it and I'm worth it and I'm going to hold out my time and I'm going to hold out the things I can do and I'm going to hold out my heart. But you've got one reason to give it all to Him. And that reason is that He is still a God of grace who is as full of love today for you as He was when He carried your sins to a cross. He is still as full of a heart to bless you as He was when He walked out of a grave three days after He died. He is still... Lord God, where are y'all at this morning? He is still the same God who slid into your soul and said you do not have to live in your sins and you do not have to die lost. If you look to my Son, the Lord Jesus, He will save you and redeem you. God has not changed. And He is crying out to you today from this text and from the things you have heard this morning and from the songs that have been sung. And He has been saying to you, return to me. Lay down your excuses. Lay down the garbage. I have not changed. I have not changed. Yes, things around here change. God does not change. He will not change. His character does not change. His love does not change. His expectations do not change. It's time to have our invitation today, but i got a story I want to tell you, because I like it. Some of y'all may have heard it before. I may have even told you before, but I like it so good, I want to tell it again. Because some of y'all need to hear this. An old man and his wife have been married for 50, 60 years. Some of y'all know what that's like. And by that point, you don't have a lot to say to each other. And even if you did, you couldn't hear it anyway. But they'd been, they'd been riding down the same old country roads by their house in the same old pickup truck for 50 years. And he was driving. And she was up against the window, staring out the window. Years and years and years, they went down the road like that in virtual silence. And one day... She's leaned up against the window, looking out the window, watching the fields go by. She says, honey, don't you remember what it was like when we were dating? And we were so close in this pickup truck that you couldn't hardly change your gears. We were right on top of each other. Honey, don't you remember what that was like? And the old man driving down the road said, honey, I remember. And I hadn't moved. Listen, God hadn't moved. He's still the same God He was when you were at your most passionate. Now, to be honest with you today, the last thing we need to do, the last thing you need to do is come to this altar and cry about this until you feel better. What you need to do is you need to repent of how unfaithful you've been, of how you let everything in the world distract you from serving Jesus. You need to make it right. You need to draw back to Him. And He will draw near to you. You need to handle your business with God this morning. Amen? Let's go home.